Hello, and welcome back to the book reading series. If you are just joining, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, last book reading series, if you're joining for my Patreon, um, which you should be, <laughs> but my last book reading series, we finished uh, White Rage, which was an intense reading, a necessary reading. It gave a lot of historical context to what we're seeing today. And it also allowed us a chance to see how history is a continuation of itself um, and not necessarily repeating itself. It's never changed or it's never stopped to have something to repeat. It's just had itself to continue on. So if you do have the book, I encourage you to read it um, and you can come back and check in with the sections that we've read and, and share your thoughts. I would love to hear that. If you don't have the book, but you want to read it, certainly go back through the the White Rage series and read the book and get caught up at your pace. Like I said, it is a heavy and intense book, so it can take a little bit to get through, but it's completely worth it. It is the first day of Black History Month, February 1st, 2024, and I'm excited to introduce this new book. Uh, it is My Grandmother's Hands, and the author is Resma Manekam, and Manekam, I hope I'm saying that correctly. I will look it up before we read next week. I apologize for not having that correct pronunciation, but it's my grandmother's hands, racialized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies. If you've been with me for any period of time, then you know that my goal is healing. That is why I do this work. That's why I encourage other people to do this work. That is a lot of, a lot of where my grace comes from is the healing. Healing is necessary for us to get to a true place of decolonizing and anti-racism and dismantling these systems of oppression. And that starts with healing. And this book was suggested to me and I've, I thumbed through it a couple years ago, but I don't know if I was ready to read it. I was at kind of the beginning of a different section of my, or a different portion of my own healing journey. So we're going to go through mostly, mostly together on this. We're going to go through this mostly together. Um, and I'm excited. So let's get started. We're going to first pay attention or we're going to read the watch your body section. It's the first part. It's like the, the prologue. It says, as you experience this book, you'll learn to pay attention to your body. If you have a white body, there will be times when it will reflexively constrict in order to protect you from some of the truths you'll encounter. You'll feel like that feeling. I think we've talked about it before. This constriction will be followed by thoughts such as, I'm not like that. I'm a good person. Or white body supremacy has nothing to do with me. Or this isn't about me because I don't belong to a racist organization. When this occurs, just notice that you're experiencing without doing any, just notice what you're experiencing without doing anything about it. Don't try to undo the constriction. Don't try to hold on to it either. Just watch your body closely and notice what sensations, impulses, and emotions arise. Don't take the reflexive thoughts seriously either. Don't try to support them. Don't debate them. Don't act on them at all. Just observe them as they arise and note any images or other thoughts that may follow. So pay attention to your body. Recognize what you're feeling and where you're feeling it. Don't push back on it. Don't try to um, dissect it. Don't try to analyze it. Just pay attention to what you're feeling in your body. If you have a black or other dark body, so black or brown body, there will be times when your body will experience a sudden shock of recognition or understanding. Things you hadn't fully grasped before may suddenly become clear. This might be followed by a rush of energy in the form of joy or anger or outrage or a felt sense of clarity and rightness. 
Let yourself experience those sensations fully, but don't hang on to them. Let them move into and through your body like a wave and then let them go. If you're a public safety professional, you may experience both sets of sensations and thoughts. A little bit of intersectionality. When one appears, allow it to flow fully into your body and mind without doing anything about it. Then let it go like a steadily shrinking image in your rearview mirror. Whatever your profession or skin color, as you read this book, at times you may sense profound hope, relief, or both. Let yourself fully experience these as they arise. Then let them go as well. I want to clarify when that says that you might feel hope and relief and then to let them go. That doesn't mean to let go of hope. That doesn't let go mean to let go of relief. It means as you're recognizing it in your in your body, don't dwell on those those any feelings that pop up. Don't dwell on those because they can shift and they can change. And if you find yourself too rooted in one particular feeling, it can make it difficult to allow the other feelings and emotions that will arise to come through and for you to truly feel them. So don't give up hope. Don't give up the hope for relief. Just recognize that it's going to flow in and out. The next part is acknowledging our ancestors, which is absolutely important, still part of the prologue. Our bodies exist in the present. To your thinking brain, there is past, present, and future. But to a traumatized body, there is only now. That now is a home of intense survival energy. Most of this book is set in the present, but small parts of it will trace two bloodlines of trauma from the past to the present. Real quick, this is from 2019. Our 20. 2019, I believe. 2017, excuse me. First, we'll trace trauma as it was passed from one European body to another during the Middle Ages, then imported to the New World by colonists, and then passed down by many generations of their descendants. Second, we'll trace trauma as European colonists instilled it in the bodies of many Africans who were forcibly imported as indentured servants and later as property to the New World. They, in turn, passed down this trauma through many generations of their descendants. On this same soil, trauma also followed another earlier path, one that spread from the bodies of European colonists to the bodies of Native people, and then through many generations of their descendants. An estimated 18 million Native people were custodians of the North American continent when European colonists arrived. They and their ancestors had lived here for an estimated 14,000 years. Today, this same land contains over 204 million white Americans, over 46 million black Americans, and just over 5 million Native Americans. The story of the unique arc of trauma in the Native American body is only now being told, beginning to be told. I don't describe this arc ex except tangently in this book. I hope a wise and compassionate Native writer soon will. In the meantime, I offer my respect an acknowledgement to the people who were stewards of this land long before folks from Africa and Europe made it their home. We're gonna move into the first chapter. Excuse me, this is still kind of a prologue. It's Our Bodies, Our Country. As I write these words in early 2017, America itself is tearing, it, America is tearing itself apart. On the surface, this war looks like the natural outcome of many recent social and political clashes, but it's not. These conflicts are anything but recent. 156 years ago, they spawned the American Civil War, but even in the 1860s, these conflicts were already centuries old. They began in Europe during the Middle Ages, where they tore apart close to 2 million white bodies. 
The resulting tension came to America embedded in the bodies of Europeans, and it has remained in the bodies of many of their descendants. Over the past three centuries, what the t that tension has been both soothed and deepened by the invention of whiteness and the resulting racialization of American culture. At first glance, today's manifestation of this conflict appears to be a struggle for political and social power. But as we'll see, the real conflict is more visceral. It is a battle for the souls and bodies of white Americans. It is a, body for the, it is a battle for the souls and bodies of white Americans. While we see anger and violence in the streets of our country, the real battlefield is inside our bodies. If we are to strive as a country, excuse me, if we are to survive as a country, it is inside our bodies where this conflict will need to be resolved. The conflict has been festering for centuries. Now it must be faced. For America, it is an unavoidable time of reckoning. Our character is being challenged and the content of that character is being revealed. One of two things will happen. Ideally, America will grow up and out of white body supremacy. Americans will be begin healing their long held trauma around race and whiteness will begin to evolve from race to culture and then to community. Whiteness will begin to evolve from race to culture and then to community. The other possibility is that white body supremacy will continue to be reinforced as a dominant structured form of energy in America, in American culture, in much the same way Aryan supremacy dominated German culture in the 1930s and early 1940s. If Americans choose the latter scenario, the racialized trauma that wounds so many American bodies will continue to mutate into insanity and create even more brutality and genocide. This book offers the necessary new insights, skills, and tools for creating the first scenario. It is written for every American of any background or skin color who sees this scenario as vital to our country's survival and who sees the second scenario, scenario as America's death warrant. When people hear the words white supremacy or white body supremacy, they often think of neo-Nazis and other extremists with hateful and violent agendas. That is certainly one extreme of white body supremacy but mainstream American culture is infused with a more subtle and less overt variety. In her book, What Does It Mean to Be White by Robin DiAngelo describes white supremacy as, real quick, I think that most of y'all know how I feel about white, Robin DiAngelo, how I feel about Robin DiAngelo. Having somebody quote her work as part of a bigger picture can be slightly different. So I just wanna make that perfectly clear. The all-encompassing centrality and assumed superiority of people defined and perceived as white and the practices based on this assumption, white supremacy does not refer to individual white people per se and their individual intentions, but to political, economic, social system of domination. This system is based on the historical and current accumulation of structural power that privileges, centralizes, and elevates white people as a group. I do not use it to refer to extreme hate groups. I use the term to capture the pervasiveness, magnitude, and normalcy of white dominance and assume superiority. Another real quick. This definition is correct. I agree with Robin D'Angelo there. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tangent, but I, again, I kind of speak and draft and go with what I'm thinking about. When I have spoken about Robin D'Angelo and why I don't suggest her book and my issues with her is because her work seems to stop at a definition and not a what's next. So this definition is great. This is a really good way to describe white supremacy. It's not just violent hate groups. We've talked about that. There are the, there's covert racism, overt racism, covert white supremacy, overt white supremacy. So to describe it as just a hate group 
minimizes the impact and where it can show up any place else. What this book is going to help us to do and to understand is what to do when we see that and what comes next after you can identify it. Identifying it is one piece, but we need to know what's next. Okay. One aspect of this type of white body supremacy involves seeing quote, whites as a norm or standard for human and people of color as a deviation from that norm. An actress becomes a black actress and so on, end quote. In a piece for Salon, she adds, thus we move, quote, thus we move through a wholly racialized world with an unracialized identity. For example, white people can represent all of humanity. People of color can only represent their racial selves, end quote. This everyday form of white body supremacy is in the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the culture we share. We literally cannot avoid it. It is part of the opening operating system and organizing structure of American culture. It's always functioning in the background, often invisibly, in our institutions, our relationships, and our interactions. The cultural operating system of white body supremacy influences or determines many of the decisions we make, the options we select, the choices open to us and how we make those decisions and choices. This operating system affects all of us regardless of the hue of our skin. Here's a typical example. Two economists, economists rep responded to 1300 help wanted ads in the Boston Globe and the Chicago Tribune in the fields of customer service, clerical services, sales and administrative support. In all, they responded with more than 5,000 made up resumes. The names on those resumes were randomly assigned, but some, for example, Jamal Jones and Lakeisha Washington, sounded African-American, while others sounded white, for example, Emily Walsh and Greg Baker. The researchers counted the, counted the number of employers who asked to set up interviews or get more information. The imaginary white candidates received interest from one in 10 employees. The imaginary African-American candidates received interest from one in 15. Similar, similar, similar studies have since obtained similar results. Here's another recent example of everyday supremacy. My wife, Maria, purchased some household items at Walmart and was pushing her cart towards the exit. A Walmart employee stopped her, asked to see the sales receipt, and checked the items on the receipt against the items in her cart. Maria, excuse me, Maria was thirsty, so instead of leaving the store, she bought a soft drink and sat down on a bench near the exit. Over the next two to three minutes, she watched as about 20 people left the store. The employees stopped to double check the receipts of all eight of the black customers who walked past, none and none of the non-black ones. Understandably, my wife was not happy about this and she told the store manager about it. The manager who was white was aghast. He immediately called over the employee who was also white and confronted her. She was surprised, apologetic, and a bit mortified. She insisted that she was not deliberately targeting black customers, but only checking people randomly. My wife told me, quote, she seemed completely sincere. I believe that's what she genuinely thought she was doing, end quote. The employee was not targeting black customers, customers deliberately. She was targeting them unconsciously and reflexively. But the pain that such actions create for black Americans is felt quite consciously. There are times where a bias will show up and the bias will show up and it will, the impact of that bias will cause harm to somebody else. When you're acting in response to a bias, especially an, uh, an, 
an unconscious bias or subconscious bias, then you don't always know what that next move is going to be. You just have a thought that's in your head that you've had in your head that you believe to be true and you act in response to that. That bias could have been given to you by any number of things, whether it is situational, whether it is passed down through your family, whether it is based off of one experience you had with one person, and that has now colored how you feel about an entire group of people. Sometimes the way that you respond is, is, is driven by that bias. So in this example, that employee quite possibly did not recognize at first that she was only checking the receipts of black people. But that bias that's been implanted and embedded into her head that black people steal or black people are up to no good has her now singling out black people to check their receipts. Relatively few white Americans consciously recognize, let alone embrace a subtle variety of white body supremacy. In fact, there is often no way to measure or recognize it. Imagine a real Lakeisha Washington or Emily Walsh. She would have no way of knowing why any particular employer did not respond positively to her resume, nor would my wife have noticed anything odd about the Walmart employee's actions if she hadn't stopped to relax and have a cold drink. For most Americans, including most of us with dark skin, white body supremacy has become part of our bodies. How could it not? It's the equivalent of a toxic chemical we ingest on a daily basis. Eventually, it changes our brains and the chemistry of our bodies, which is why in looking at white body supremacy, we need to begin not with guilt or blame, but with our bodies. We're going to start with part one, which is unarmed and dismembered. I'd like to try to keep these sections fairly short form, like 30 to 40 minutes. So we might not make it all the way through chapter one, but we will be back next week to go through it. Chapter one, your body and blood starts off with some quotes. No one ever talks about the moment you found that you were white or the moment you found that you were black. That's a profound revelation. The minute you find that out, something happens. You have to renegotiate everything. That's by Toni Morrison. The next quote says, history is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us. We are, we are our history. That's James Baldwin. The next quote says, there is deep wisdom within our very flesh if we can only come to our senses and feel it. Elizabeth Benke. The last quote is, people don't realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust. People aren't being held accountable. This country stands for freedom, liberty, and justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. Colin Kaepernick. When I was a boy, I used to watch television with my grandmother. I would sit in the middle of the sofa and she would stretch out over two seats, resting her legs in my lap. She often felt pain in her hands and she'd ask me to rub them in mine. When I did, her fingers would relax and she'd smile. Sometimes she'd start to hum melodically and her voice would make a vibration that reminded me of a cat's purr. She wasn't a large woman, but her hands were surprisingly stout with broad fingers and thick pads below each thumb. One day I asked her, Grandma, why are your hands like that? They ain't the same as mine. My grandmother turned from the television and looked at me. Boy, she said slowly, that's from picking cotton. They've been that way since long before I was your age. I started working in the fields sharecropping when I was four. I didn't understand. I'd helped paint 
I'd helped plant things in the garden a few times, but my own hands were bony and my fingers were narrow. I held up my hands next to hers and stared at the difference. Mm-hmm, she said. The cotton plat the cotton plat has pointed burrs in it. When you reach your hand in, the burrs rip it up. When I first started picking, my hands were all thor- torn and bloody. When I got older, they got thicker and thicker until I could reach in and pull out the cotton without them bleeding. My grandmother died last year. Sometimes I can still feel her warm, thick hands in mine. I'd made myself a note here. If you're familiar with the disparities, the medical disparities and medical racism, one of the things that we hear is that Black people don't feel pain. We don't feel pain the same way that white people do. And beyond that, Black women don't feel pain in the same way that everybody else does. And when I read that section about how her hands have become so calloused and have become so, so stout and damaged essentially due to picking cotton. I think about, is that, is that an origin of where medical racism showed up? Possibly. Is it one that's been discussed? I'm not exactly sure, but it would make sense. It would make sense to have black people out in the field pulling cotton off of plants that is making them bleed to the point where their hands are so callous that that doesn't happen anymore. Without thinking about why the hands are so callous, you're missing the fact that they were in pain first. So that was, that was a thought that I had. For the past three decades, we've earnestly tried to address white body supremacy in America with reason, principles, and ideas, using dialogue, forums, discussions, education, and mental training. But the widespread destruction of black bodies continues. And some of the ugliest destruction originates with our police. Why is there such a chasm between our well-intentioned attempts to heal and the ever-growing number of dark-skinned bodies who are killed or injured, sometimes by police officers? It's not that we've been lazy or insincere, but we've focused our efforts in the wrong direction. We've tried to teach our brains to think better about race. But white body supremacy doesn't live in our thinking brains. It lives and breathes in our bodies. Our bodies have a form of knowledge that is different from our cognitive brains. This knowledge is typically experienced as a felt sense of constriction or expansion, pain or ease, energy or numbness. Often this knowledge is stored in our bodies as wordless stories about what is safe and what is dangerous. The body is where we fear hope and react, where we constrict and release, and where we reflexively fight, flee, or freeze. If we are to upend the status quo of white body supremacy, we must begin with our bodies. New advances in psychobiology reveal that our deepest emotions, love, fear, anger, dread, grief, sorrow, disgust, and hope involve the activation of our bodily structures. These structures, a complex system of nerves, connect the brainstem, pharynx, heart, lungs, stomach, gut, and spine. Neuroscientists call this system the wandering nerve or our vagus nerve. A more apt name might be our soul nerve. The soul nerve is connected directly to a part of our brain that doesn't use cognition or reasoning as its primary tool for navigating the world. Our soul nerve also helps mediate between our body's activating energy and resting energy. This part of our brain is similar to the brain of lizards, birds, and lower mammals. Our lizard brain only understands survival and protection. At any given moment, it can issue one of a handful of survival commands, rest, fight, flee, or freeze. These are the only commands it knows and the only choices it is able to make. 
white body supremacy is always functioning in our bodies. It operates on our thinking brains and our assumptions, expectations, and mental shortcuts. It operates in our muscles and nervous systems where it routinely creates constriction, but it operates most powerfully in our lizard brains. A lizard brain cannot think. It is reflexively protective and it is strong. It loves whatever it feels will keep us safe and it fears and hates whatever it feels will do us harm. All our sensory input has to pass through the reptilian part of our brain before it even reaches the cortex where we think and reason. Our lizard brain scans all of this input and responds in a fraction of a second by either letting something enter into the cortex or rejecting it and inciting a fight, flee, or freeze response. This mechanism allows our lizard brain to override our thinking brain whenever it senses real or imagined danger. It blocks any information from reaching our thinking brain until after it has sent the message to fight, flee, or freeze. In many situations, our thinking brain is smart enough to be careful and situational, but when there appears to be danger, our lizard brain might say to the thinking brain, screw you, out of my way, we're going to fight, flee, or freeze. Again, if you've been with me for a while, um, you have heard me say to take a beat, take a beat, take a breath to relax before responding, especially as of late with some of the content that I've been, um, been releasing is to take a breath. I'm going to say some things that's going to shock the system, right? Um, again, it's, I do everything intentionally. So you see, you, you hear something that shocks your system. And as we're finding out, as we're reading in this book, everything lives in our body. So when it shocks that system, it shocks it at that lizard brain first. And so if you don't take that breath, if you don't take a beat, then you're responding from that portion, that lizard brain, and not getting to the cognitive section, not getting to the critical thinking section, not getting to the place where you can actually hear and absorb what's being said and then make the decision about what's next instead of just right up here at the front. So remember that lizard brain. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many of us picture our thinking brain as a tiny CEO in our head who makes important executive decisions. But this metaphor is misguided. Our cortex doesn't get the opportunity to have a thought about any piece of sensory input unless our lizard brain lets it through. And in making its decision, our reptilian brain always asks the same question, is this dangerous or safe? Remember that dangerous can mean a threat to more than just the well-being of our body. It can mean a threat to what we do, say, think, care about, believe in, or yearn for. When it comes to safety, our thinking mind is third in line after our body and our lizard brain. That's why when we put a hand on the hot frying pan, the hand jerks away instantly while, while our thinking brain goes, what the hell just happened? Ow, that shit is hot. It's also why you might have the impulse to throw the pan across the kitchen, even though doing so won't help you. Let's keep that example in mind. The body is where we live. It's where we fear, hope, and react. It's where we constrict and relax. And what the body most cares about are safety and survival. When something happens to the body that is too much, too fast, or too soon, it overwhelms the body and can create trauma. Contrary to what people believe, trauma is not primarily an emotional response. Trauma always happens in the body. It is a spontaneous protective mechanism used by the body to stop or thwart future, further or future potential damage. Trauma is not a flaw or a weakness. It is a highly effective tool of safety and survival. Trauma is also not an event. Trauma is a body's protective response to an event 
or a series of events that is perceived as that is perceived as a potentially dangerous that it perceives as potentially dangerous this perception this perception may be accurate inaccurate or entirely imaginary in the aftermath of highly stressful or traumatic situations our soul nerve and lizard brain may embed a reflexive trauma response in our bodies this happens at lightning speed so let's go back to the example about the hot pot the hot pan you place your hand in the hot pan the first thing that you feel is heat pain and you respond to that. You don't think about why it's hot. You don't think about where the pain came from. You don't even think about how to make sure that pain doesn't happen again. Instead, you respond in kind. And in this example, respond by getting rid of that pain. That thing hurt me. Get it away from me. I don't want anything to do with it. When we think about the trauma that came from that, the trauma is not the pan. The trauma is not even burning the pan. The trauma is how you responded to burning your hand in the pan. You were traumatized by that instant feeling of heat, that searing pain. You were traumatized by the fact that you were upset about that pain and you didn't understand where it came from because you hadn't made it past your lizard brain yet. And because it hadn't made that past that lizard brain yet, what's happening is that trauma is now settling into your body, into your brain. So the next time that you come around a hot pan, you might not want to be anywhere near it because your body recognizes that pain that you felt when you were near the pan. The trauma is again responding to the pain that you felt. And that trauma is not allowing you to think about, okay, how did we get here? Why did my hand hurt? What do we need to do next? Is it really the pan? Was it an accident? Any number of things. So the trauma is not the event. The trauma is the response to the event and how that arises in the future. An embedded trauma response can manifest as fight, flee, or freeze, or some combination of constriction, pain, fear, dread, anxiety, unpleasant, and or sometimes pleasant thoughts, reactive behaviors, or other sensations and experiences. This trauma then gets stuck in the body and stays stuck there until it is addressed. We can have a trauma response to anything we perceive as a threat, not only to our physical safety, but to what we do, say, think, care about, believe in, or yearn for. This is why people get murdered for disrespecting other folks' relatives or their favorite sports teams. It's also why people get murdered when other folks imagine a relative or favorite team being disrespected. From the body's viewpoint, safety and danger are neither situational nor based on cognitive feelings. Rather, they are physical, visceral sensations. The body either has a sense of safety or it doesn't. If it doesn't, it will do almost anything to establish or recover that sense of safety. Trauma responses are unique to each person. Each such response is influenced by a person's particular physical, mental, emotional, and social makeup, and of course, by the precipitating experiences themselves. However, trauma is never a person failing, or never a personal failing, and it is never something a person can choose. It is always something that happens to someone. A traumatic response usually sets in quickly, too quickly to involve the rational brain. Indeed, a traumatic response temporarily overrides the rational brain. It's like when a computer senses a virus and responds by shutting down some or all of its functions. This is also why when mending trauma, we need to proceed slowly so that we can uncover the body's functions without triggering yet another trauma response. As mentioned earlier, trauma is also a wordless story our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. Our rational brain can't stop it from occurring, and it can't talk our body out of it. Trauma can cause us to react to present events in ways that seem wildly inappropriate, overly charged, or otherwise out of proportion. 
Whenever someone freaks out suddenly or reacts to a small problem as if it were a catastrophe, it's often a trauma response. Something in the here and now is rekindling old pain or discomfort, and the body tries to address it with the reflexive energy that's still stuck inside the nervous system. This is what leads to over-the-top reactions. Such overreactions are the body's attempt to complete a protective action that got thwarted or overridden during a traumatic situation. The body wanted to fight or flee, but wasn't able to do either, so it got stuck in freeze mode. In many cases, it then develops strategies around this stuckness, including extreme reactions, compulsions, strange likes and dislikes, seemingly irrational fears, and unusual avoidance strategies. Over time, these can become embedded in the body as standard ways of surviving and protecting itself. When these strategies are repeated and passed on over generations, they can become the standard responses in families, communities, and cultures. One common and often overlooked trauma response is what I call trauma ghosting. This is the body's recurrent or pervasive sense that danger is just around the corner or something terrible is going to happen in any moment. These responses tend to make little cognitive sense and the person's own cognitive brain is often unaware of them. But for the body, they make perfect sense. It is protecting itself from repeating the experience that caused or preceded the trauma. In other cases, people do the exact opposite. They reenact or precipitate situations similar to the ones that caused their trauma. This may seem crazy or neurotic to the cognitive mind, but there is bodily wisdom behind it. By creating such a situation, the person also creates an opportunity to complete whatever action got thwarted or overridden. This might help the person mend the trauma, create more room for growth in his or her body or their body, and settle their nervous system. However, the attempt to reenact the event often simply repeats, reinflicts, and deepens the trauma. When this happens repeatedly over time, the trauma response can look like part of the person's personality. As years and decades pass, reflexive traumatic responses can lose context. A person may forget that something happened to him or her or them and then internalize the trauma responses. These responses are typically viewed by others and often by the person as a personal defect. When this same strategy gets internalized and passed down over generations within a particular group, it can start to look like culture. Therapists call this a traumatic retention. Many African-Americans know trauma intimately from their own nervous systems, from the experiences of people they love, and most often from both. But African-Americans are not alone in this. A different but equally real form of racialized trauma lives in the bodies of most white Americans. And a third, often deeply toxic type of racialized trauma lives and breathes in the bodies of many of America's law enforcement officers. All three types of trauma are routinely passed on from person to person and from generation to generation. This intergenerational transmission, which more aptly and less clinically, I call a soul wound, occurs in multiple ways. Through families in which one family member abuses or mistreats another, through unsafe or abusive systems, structures, institutions, and or cultural norms, through our genes, Recent work in human genetics su suggests that trauma is passed on in our DNA expression through the biochemistry of the human egg, sperm, and womb. This means that no matter what we look like, if we were born and raised in America, white, supremacy, white body supremacy and our adaptations to it are in our blood. Our very bodies house the unhealed dissonance and trauma of our ancestors. 
This is why white body supremacy continues to persist in America and why so many African-Americans continue to die from it. We will not change the situation through training, traditional education, and other appeals to the cognitive brain. We need to begin with the body and its relation to trauma. In Between the World and Me, Tanisi Coates exposed the long outs- the longstanding and ongoing destruction of the Black body in America. That destruction will continue until Americans of all cultures and colors learn to acknowledge the inherited trauma of white body supremacy embod- embedded in all our bodies. We need to metabolize this trauma, work through it with our bodies, not just our thinking brains, and grow up out of it. Only in this way will we at last mend our bodies, our families, and the collective body of our nation. The process differs slightly for Black folks, white folks, and America's police. But all of us need to heal, and with the right guidance, all of us can. That healing is the purpose of this book. That is, we're going to stop there. We've got a little bit more of chapter one to go through, but we covered a lot today. And we're ending on page 10, if you're reading along with the physical book. So I paused a little bit to talk about a few things and it came up in the book after. What we can take away from this portion of the book right now is again, that trauma is a bodily response. Trauma is in your body. I've spoken about this before. When you feel activated by something, pay attention to where you feel it. Is it your gut, your chest, or your head? And we're gonna go into that more with this book, but it's a traumatic response. It's a traumatic response. And it's a traumatic response to generational generational anger, generational frustration, generational hate and rage. It's, it's passed down throughout your generations. And this opening right here is a good reason why you can't say that you don't claim other white people. This is a good reason why you can't say, and this is for everybody, why saying we are not our ancestors is not true. It is minimizing of what our ancestors have done, all of our ancestors, whatever, what they've done, how they've shown up, the pain they've caused, the pain they felt, it is all generational, it's all passed down and we all carry it in our bodies. So this is a reminder again to take a beat, take a beat in every instance, not just when you're doing your anti-racism work, your decolonizing work, take a beat when you hear something that hits that lizard brain in certain in such a way, there's something behind it and you take that beat, you can get to it. It had been asked or suggested or the, the comments that I received is that I give a specific prompt or ask a specific question for the comment section of this book reading series. And I think what's starting here, I, I have a couple things I want you to think about. I want you to think about what you're feeling. And if you feel comfortable sharing it, what you're feeling and where you're feeling it. You do not need to go into detail about it. You don't, if you want to, you certainly can, but you don't need to. If you just want to say, I felt uncomfortable and I felt uncomfortable in my chest. If you want to say, I felt uncomfortable and I felt uncomfortable in my chest because I did not expect to hear this and it made me feel some type of way, you certainly can. But I want you to share what you were feeling, where you're feeling it. I want us to get familiar with acknowledging where it is in our body that that the, the, the hearing this information and getting ready for these trauma that to work through our body, where you're feeling that. Be aware of your body, understand where you're feeling it because the hope, the hope is that throughout reading this book, we start to feel it in different places and we can recognize it before it happens so we can prepare ourselves for it. I also want you to think about a, a time, let's use the example of the frying pan where something happened and in that moment, it, it you felt something hurt, anger, pain, and you responded in that moment without taking a beat. Think, in a, think of a situation where that happened and I want you to think about 
and this is for your journal. I want you to think about the situation where that happened, how you responded and what happened after the response. And after you do that, think now with hearing where trauma, how trauma is a, a response to an event and how it's held in your body. Think about how that could have gone differently if we would have made it past our lizard brain and gotten to what's actually going on. Okay. So for the comment section on Patreon, think about what you were feeling and where you were feeling it. If you want to go into details, you certainly can. That is up to you. I keep that community safe. So anything that you share there will stay there and only there. Um, and then for your journal entry, think again about the moment or a time that you had it, that instant response that your lizard brain kicked in and you responded from that initial feeling and didn't take that beat to go beyond it and figure out exactly what's going on or think about exactly what's going on. I'm excited for this book. Um, again, if you want to read ahead, you absolutely can. We're going to go at the pace that we do to make sure. I like to make sure it's accessible too. My attention span will only hold me for so long. And knowing my community, I know that not all of us have the long attention span for long form. So I want to respect that as well. In the meantime, thank you so much for starting this book with me. Thank you for being with me on Patreon. Um, and I look forward to seeing you next week. If you do subscribe to my, or if you follow my podcast, there is a chance that this portion will make it to the podcast. I think it's a good way to talk about trauma. Uh, so you might hear it there as well. But in the meantime, take care of yourselves. I love you. And we'll see you next week.